Hello and welcome to the CRV Podcast. My name is Jeff Wright and I'm one of the regular contributors to the CRV website. As you may know, CRV focuses on the Southern Baptist Convention. However, because Southern Baptists are part of the broader evangelical world, what happens in the SBC affects evangelicals and what happens in evangelicalism affects Southern Baptists. With that in mind, on this episode, I'm going to talk to my longtime friend Jared Moore about his work on the theology of the Revoice Conference and its leaders. This work comes out of Jared's PhD work, and in my mind is very timely, considering the efforts to re-engineer the church's understanding of human sexuality taking place currently within evangelicalism. I just want to note that one of the most interesting aspects of Jared's work in my mind is his insight that this very contemporary debate is actually rooted in some of the most ancient distinctions within the church. So with that in mind, let's jump into my conversation with Jared. Well, hey, Jared Moore, this isn't the first podcast you and I've done, man, but it's it's the first we've done this style. I'm here to interview you. How you doing? I'm doing well, man. Doing well. Had a pretty good day. Well, good. Good. Family healthy? Yeah, everybody's healthy right now. Yeah. Haven't got the Rona. Good deal, man. I'm glad to hear that. Um, man, we're here to talk about an important subject that is very much in your wheelhouse. Uh, did your PhD on it, as a matter of fact. When are we going to get to read your dissertation? You going to publish that thing? I hope so, man. Um, I just sent a, you know, I sent three chapters to two publishers, and one of the publishers requested the whole manuscript, and I don't have it done yet, but I sent them my dissertation, and I hope they come back with a decision next couple months. Yeah, I think that'd be good too. Uh, I've gotten I've got a chance to take a look at that, and I think it ought to be in publication and and available. So um, yeah, I'm going to hope that 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 comes to pass. We're here to talk about Revoice and Revoice theology. You've been writing for Founders Ministries most recently on this subject. Founders is an SBC facing website. Uh, you've also written on monergism on the topic, right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Anywhere else? Um, no, just those two right now. Okay. So with Founders being the most recent, uh, am I right to say there's been five five in- installations of that series so far? There's been one just standalone article and then four in a series where I try to apply, well, I apply Revoice's logic to all sin. Yeah, I like that. That's one of my favorite things you do. So for our listeners who maybe don't know, uh, they're not familiar with these articles, can you kind of tell us what the one article is about and then what the other four are about in summary so that if people want to go to the Founders blog and click on the drop down to select your name, they know what they're getting into? Sure. Um if you go to Founders, uh, the first article was, Did Jesus Desire to Not Do Something His Father Commanded in the Garden of Gethsemane? And uh, in that, I interact with uh, Matthew Lee Anderson, who's got a PhD from Oxford in ethics, and um, he is on the advisory council of Revoice. And he and many others um, that are in uh, involved with Revoice, and I've seen many Christians make this error as well, they argue that <clears throat> they argue that temptation is not sin because Jesus was tempted, and um, they're right that temptation is not sin if it is outward, if you're tempted in the particular way that Jesus was. But we got to remember that we are sinners, and that inner temptation, according to James, uh, comes from us. It does not come from God. And if you go and read in James one, uh, James is arguing; uh, he's making a moral argument when he says that our inner temptation does not come from God. He's saying it is immoral. Mm. Uh, otherwise, the only argument is Pelagianism. You know, we have to argue that it's 
good, right? That we produce good apart from God. Mm. Uh, but in the Reformed tradition, we don't believe that. You know, we don't believe that we produce good, any spiritual or um, saving good um, or obedience to the law um, concerning saving good, right? We are tainted by inward <clears throat> indwelling sin, original sin. And um, so Matthew Lee Anderson argues that Jesus didn't want to do something his father commanded in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, which means he desired to do something against his father's command. Yeah, and, that's scary. And, yeah, it uh, it blows my mind how far some of these guys will go to try to defend same-sex attraction. And, okay. Uh, they, you know, well, and, so, uh, and that's what they're doing. They're, they're trying to defend— well, see, Jesus desired to do something God didn't want him to do, and to go again, he desired to go against his Father's will. You know, I mean, that that just it blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a stunning idea that there would be anything in the perfectly obedient Son that would be contrary to the will of the Father. I, I mean, just in charity, that they're making a lot out of not my will be done, but Thy will be done. Oh yeah, but but Luke starts it out with "If it be your will," I mean that's how Jesus begins his prayer. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your be yours be done. And so the whole time Jesus is emphasizing God's will. Um, what we got to understand though is that you know same sex attraction is against the design of God, is against God's revealed will in Scripture. But what exactly does Matthew think that? Jesus Not Matthew desired. the evangelist, Matthew Lee Anderson, right? Yeah. Just what to make sure Anderson, I'm clear on this. What does Anderson think that uh, Jesus desired that was against his commands? Like, what what did Jesus, what sinful thing did Jesus desire? Because, I mean, Jesus obviously desired to do his Father's will. He did not want to drink his Father's wrath, which if he's holy, he shouldn't want to drink it. Hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's his Father's wrath. Should he want to become sin? I mean, sure. uh, again, all these things that—so Jesus desired to do his Father's will, which is what he prayed, but he did not desire the evil that came along with it, and he did not desire um, the becoming sin that came along with it and enduring man's um, lawlessness, which is what, when Peter stands up at Pentecost, he says that, uh, you know, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you delivered um, Christ into the hands of lawless men. And so— Jesus desired what God foreordained, but he did not desire lawless men, right? He did not desire the sin that was going to befell him. And um, and so that there's an orthodox biblical way to view this, and there's no need to go to, well, Jesus desired something sinful. Okay, so because I'm your friend uh, and we talk regularly, I'll just confess before the listeners here that you have really shifted me on this topic. And so... I very much still know what it's like to sit as a layman in front of your uh, the expertise that you developed through your PhD. And so just in case some people are kind of getting into this for the first time, I'm going to just throw a couple of questions at you to, that I think maybe will clarify. So earlier you made a distinction between outward temptation and inward temptation. Tell me if my right. understanding is accurate or inaccurate. When Jesus was tempted, the outward temptation is Satan as tempter coming to him and saying, I suspect you're hungry because you've been fasting. Why don't you abuse your you know, your authority and your power that is submitted to the Father and supernaturally make bread? Mm -hmm. um, but Jesus never had an inward temptation to, I mean, I guess to use gluttony, to eat way too much bread, more bread than would be appropriate to eat. There was never an inclination within him to engage in gluttony. 
Right. And and the reality is, is that Jesus, because he is holy, like he would have to will that sinful desire. Like he would have to choose within himself. See, there there is no unnatural inclination in Jesus. There is no hmm. um, cursed inclination. There is no original inclination, original sin in him. And so he would have, he's like Adam and Eve before they sinned. They had to literally will the desire that was contrary to God. Hmm. And so even, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan could only use good things that were rightfully Jesus's already. Sure. Um, he couldn't even tempt him. I mean, he didn't tempt him with lust. He didn't tempt him with something that is forbidden. He tempted it with things that are already his. And the text moves really fast. In any, any of the temptation accounts you read, I mean, he is, um, he just rebuts immediately. Like there's no contemplation. There's no, I mean, if, if the text didn't say he went, the Holy Spirit led him to be tempted, you wouldn't think that he was tempted at all. Mm, because he's so adamant in his stance against the temptation, right? I'm, I mean, he's not like Eve when she she looks at the tree and sees it's pleasing to the eyes and, you know, able mm. to make one wise. And there's none of that. Gotcha. It's just he immediately responds in, with Scripture. So in your um, articulation here, in contrast to Jesus— I often find the temptation to gluttony arising authentically from within who I am, because authentically who I am is image bearer, yes, but also fallen. And so the fallen aspect of who I am authentically produces an inward desire for something that's wicked. But Jesus as the Holy One, not subject to a fallen nature, uh, he would have to make a choice to say, I'm not inwardly inclined to disobedience, but I'll just go ahead and eat the apple anyway. Am I yes. Yeah. Yes. Like I, I, I want to do this against my father. I want to desire this because Jesus would never desire anything from the devil. Sure. Man, he would never desire something from the devil's hand. And I don't believe he desired. I believe he desired those things because they were his father's to give him. Oh, absolutely. He, he was going to receive the kingdoms of the earth. It was just through the cross, not through uh, satanic gift wrapping. Right. He, right. And so he desired those things, but he did not desire them from the devil. And um, so he was tempted in that he desired the objects, but desiring those objects from his father was not sin. And so the devil tried to take something that his father, that he knew, he obviously knew his father had promised these things. Um, and thus he offered them from him instead. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. So then to go back to Gethsemane with Jesus, the way you're framing, I mean, you're framing Luke as the primary account that gives us the first inclination of Christ, right? That well, he prayed, not my will be done, but your will be done. I think Luke is a summary of the whole, you know, this is how Luke summarized the whole tradition. Yeah. yeah, the whole, the whole uh, account. And so other, I think two other gospels mention it and they're much more detailed. But Luke is, um, you know, it's I want to say it's two or three sentences. Okay. So then, so when we're thinking about the prayer, uh, (gasps) let your will be done in the prayer, not my will be done, but your will be done as two distinct prayers uh, from the same person who we assume is willing the same thing, you know, internally because he's a perfectly absolute being internally. Um the idea then is that kind of the prayer of Jesus is equivalent to, Father, I want your will. Under that umbrella, I find within myself a desire to escape your wrath and the physical torment of the cross. If there's any room for that in your will, but if there's not room for that in your will, I definitely want your will more than I want my desire to not suffer to be fulfilled. Am, am I getting that right? 
Um, I don't know that I would go that far. Okay. Um, well, by all means, set me straight, because that's kind of why you're the one getting interviewed and I'm the one asking the question. Well, I, I don't know that I would say that he um, – he obviously knew he had to suffer. I mean, it's possible concerning Christ's humanity – how much he knew is difficult to determine, or it can be as far as pertaining to his humanity. So then, you know, obviously I'm, I've not got my head around it really well. Could you kind of just carefully and, and, you know, like I'm five years old, explain to me the relationship between what Jesus was wanting and asking in the garden over and against his ultimate desire to see his his father's will fulfilled? Yeah, my my understanding is that he was wanting uh, his father's will to be fulfilled, but he was not desiring. Um, I, I think Jesus is the perfect example of how to handle difficult providence. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it's kind of like getting cancer, mm. um, not wanting to get cancer, not desiring to get cancer, but embracing God's will that I have cancer. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. I know that's yeah. probably crude, but... Um, yeah, like you're like going to rejoice, Jesus. whatever, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name that you wouldn't have, you know, maybe opted into this if you'd known in advance. But once you realize this is the Lord's will, you're going to receive it with joy as far as you're able. Right. But it, but at any point, you know, you don't desire the cancer, you sure. know, and, and same way with Jesus, not desiring the cross, not desiring uh, man's evil and not even desiring his father's wrath, but nevertheless desiring his father's will. And uh, I think he's the perfect example of what we are to do with difficult providence. And you don't get more difficult providence than the cross. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and to think that Jesus, that this is a, that Jesus is tempting himself, which tempting himself to what? To disobey his father? I mean that that's what the devil does. Yeah. Like I mean just the implications are huge. I I wish Anderson would come out and respond. Um you know he he's never responded publicly, but I wish he would because this is pretty heinous. I mean this is this is deceiving and there there are guys that they're they're so enamored by Anderson that they just drink deep whatever he says and he mm. he's flat out wrong on this. I mean I there are guys in SBC institutions that think that he is just amazing on the temptation of Christ and the Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane, and and he's not. Mm. Um, I mean, he he's just flat out wrong. Um, let me let me read you what. Uh, let's see what uh, Daryl Bach said. All right, so Daryl Bach, uh, research professor, of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary, talking about Jesus. He said, in other words. Um, he says that Jesus is requesting a potential alteration in God's plan where the cup of wrath is dispensed with, but only if it is possible and with God's will. Jesus' qualifications about God's will make the request in such a way that the previous certainty expressed about God's plan is irrelevant. In effect, Jesus says, if it is necessary, it is necessary. But if there is another way, could it be? To argue that the prayer is only about wrath not abiding on Jesus ignores his prediction of vindication. He already knew that the wrath he faced would not be permanent. The rest provides the answer. Jesus is going to suffer. Nevertheless, he will submit to God's will. In fact, the prayer closes as it began with Jesus expressing his commitment to God's will. His attitude is exemplary. He makes known the desire of his heart to God, but his primary concern is to accomplish God's will. Jesus's question is like that expressed by the three Jewish men in Daniel three seventeen through 18. So you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Mm-hmm. And talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and they say... 
you know, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so it's basically, it's it's a similar situation. Jesus is essentially saying, if it be will, your will, you are able to deliver me, but if not, your will be done. And you said that's Daryl Bach. Yes, I, I think I think he's right on this. Um, I think William Hendrickson, which is you know he had some some liberal views, but uh, um, he he was right about this. Okay. Well, to to bring that into the topic of the conversation, so you mentioned that MLA Matthew Lee Anderson is on the Revoice Board and yeah, the advis- advisory council. Okay. Um, you're writing about Revoice, and Revoice is. Uh, primarily associated with the PCA, but it could be that someone loving the CRV podcast is tuned into this just because it's episode number four and they don't know much about Revoice. So could you sketch out for us what Revoice is? Sure. Uh, Revoice was founded primarily by Nate Collins. Nate Collins has a PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I think it's in New Testament. And, um, he has since, you know, he he taught, I think, briefly, maybe a class or two at Southern, but, you know, they come out with a Nashville statement, and he was, he moved on to, to St. Louis, but started Revoice, and he's joined the PCA, and, um, you know, they, they basically argue that <clears throat> sexual attraction entails um, much more than sexual attraction. And so they, they argue for separating one's same-sex sexual attraction from one's same-sex attraction. They call same-sex attraction homosexual orientation. And so they tell folks, they tell people who are gay, that in order to be holy and pleasing to God, um, they need to trust in Christ. But then to be faithful, they need to reject their same-sex sexual attraction and they need to turn their same-sex attraction, the non-sexual aspects of their attraction, to same-sex friendships. And so okay. they, they, yeah. So that, that's the. I didn't mean to interrupt, the, but that's a. I mean, it's problematic on the surface level. But again, I've interrupted, so I'll quit and you continue. Yeah, they. I mean, who talks like this? Who talk? Who who looks at the text of Romans one and says, you know. That sexual aspect, men having sex with men was wrong, but but the actual homosexual orientation that those men had toward one another was not wrong. And um, who does that? Who tries to parse out um, what is sinful and what is good? And um, but that's what Revoice has done, and people have run to it because well, it's a way that it's a way that people get tired of fighting indwelling sin. Jeff, I don't know about you, man, but I get tired of fighting my indwelling sin. <laughs> Do you not get tired of fighting yours? No, absolutely not. I've made my peace with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I think actually John MacArthur was asked earlier this year what he's most looking forward to about heaven outside of the presence of Christ. And he said, basically, I'm looking forward to being able to stop fighting this inward compulsion to sin that I have. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. And and so Revoice's answer, instead of emphasizing God's grace, instead of emphasizing repentance, they actually tell people, um, you need same-sex friendships, same-sex intimacy. And so they tell, they're basically telling these men and women to act on their homosexual orientation in non-sexual same-sex friendships. And the, the, the biggest problem is that when you go back to the Garden of Eden, and everything that they're talking about, let, let's, just, let's just assume they're right. 
that God made sexual attraction and entailed in sexual attraction are these non-sexual realities. Well, if God made those things in the garden, he made them for marriage and marriage alone. And so they are wanting to separate from marriage. They want to they want to say, well, the sex is for marriage. But these other sexual, non-sexual things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is what they're saying, this same sex attraction. Well, that's for friendships. And um, it just it just blows my mind. Like it blows my mind how many people have dove into this because it's blatantly unbiblical and it's blatantly non-reformed. It, it's against Augustine. It's against every reformed confession and catechism for the 1500s and 1600s. Well, I want to um, get there. I want to get there for sure. But again, just confessing and trying to help the listener come along the path. Um, one of the things that you, maybe the first thing that when you were doing your work that I was like, I don't think I see it that way. And you helped me see better was... Uh, this is my paraphrase, so correct everything I'm saying, but you, you help me to see a distinction between a desire that is a perversion of a natural or a creational good versus uh, a desire that is intrinsically sinful and has no relationship to a creational good. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, lust man for a woman uh, who is not his wife has some relationship for the appropriate attraction a husband should feel only for his wife. There's a sinful warping and distortion and marring, but there's still a connection to the creational relationship between one man and one woman. But on the other hand, a, a, a sexual desire for a man coming from another man is entirely disconnected from anything in the creational order. Uh, again, that's kind of my my summary of it. You you correct what I got wrong there, but I, I, I want you to because I think it's a helpful distinction. No, I think that's right. I think you described it perfectly. It, it's Romans one. Um, the Apostle Paul argues that it, upside down worship led to upside down sexuality. We're literally worshiping the creature instead of the creator, and then he chooses to focus on homosexuality because they're they're exchanging God's design for man's desire. Right. You know, they're they they literally God designed male and females, and Paul uses the, the term natural, meaning God's God's design. Instead of following God's design, they rejected God's design and again embraced the creature. In this in this sense, their own hearts. You know, they followed their sinful passions, he argues. Yeah. So and, listener, if you know, if you're following along here, this is why the common argument that you hear that basically the temptation towards same sex attraction should be handled largely the same or thought of the same, I guess I should say, as the temptation to opposite sex attraction uh, really doesn't work. Uh, it appears to have some similarity on the surface, but when you when you really look at it through the Romans lens, you see that we're not comparing like, we're comparing dislike. That that one has grounding in the again creational goodness, and the other is a blasphemous upside downing. Is what you know Jared said here. Uh, you know counterfeit, maybe mm-hmm. something like that. It's like trying to find the good in pagan worship. I mean, uh, that's basically. I mean, mm-hmm. follow Paul. Follow Paul's logic in Romans one. You know that. I mean, if you're trying to find the good in same sex attraction, you need to try to find the good in worshiping the creature. And um, who's going to do that? I mean, <laughs> that's literally the opposite. I mean, it's literally trying to find the good in idol worship. Hmm. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. And I mean, can you imagine trying to parse out, hmm, you know, these are what the pagans are desiring. And 
Um, anyway. Yeah, so if the listener is thinking about Paul on Mars Hill, he kind of deals with that, but he doesn't affirm you know, the worshiping of pagan gods, he says your temple to an unknown God is a grasping after Mm -hmm. what is. It's not good in and of itself or containing good uh, elements within it. It's just expression of human desire for knowing their creator. And uh, he's not affirming idolatrous worship. No, he shows them, you know, the the unknown God you worship in ignorance, you know, the God you worship in ignorance, which what a statement, you know, what rhetoric. Um, they're not really worshiping him. I mean, that, that's the whole point. They're in sinful rebellion, and thus he proclaims to them the truth yeah. apologetically there. And, uh, basically, they need to be corrected. The, the truth needs to correct them. Yeah. Yes, okay. and yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, they cannot, in order to repent, they cannot continue in any form of pagan worship. You know what I'm saying? Like they can't say, oh, we're going to worship the creature in a non-sexual way. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I mean, we're going to rebel against God's design just a little bit. And that's the thing. If it's unnatural for men to have sex with men, it's unnatural for um, to desire same-sex intimacy the way that Revoice is arguing. Because it would be one thing, man, if they were arguing for just having friendships, but they insist on having friendships because they're gay. Like, Mm. they're not arguing for having opposite-sex friendships, which is what I, in my dissertation, that's what I argue. Like, I I don't understand why why they're not telling homosexual men and women to pursue opposite sex friendships. Like, I I don't get that. But the reason why is because they're gay. They want to act on their gayness. They want to act on their, they say they need male intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. That's troublesome. You know what they desire? They desire same sex marriage. That's what they desire. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so for a layman like me, I think that's pretty much the immediate conclusion, someone who who kind of encounters revoice, uh, and I know there's distinction here, but the concept of spiritual friendship, you encounter that teaching, and if you have a, you know, if you're bringing a commitment to traditional sexual ethics with you, when you encounter it, you go, this sounds like marriage just without sex, mm-hmm. and you know, you really get, you pretty immediately realize that, oh my gosh, this is going to be a catastrophe, in the same way that. You know, if there's a, uh, I say in the same way, in similar fashion to how if, if as a pastor, I have an unmarried couple in my office saying, man, we, we just really want to have sex. I don't tell them, look, go home and work through that desire and cultivate a deep friendship in the confines of your private room. I tell them, well, you should get married or (laughs) you should take really seriously uh, the need to set up safeguards to keep you from indulging your temptation in a moment of weakness. Right. I, I, I wouldn't send them, you know, into an isolated environment to work on their friendship. Right. Right. And if you had a deacon come to you and say, hey, I'm attracted to this woman at work. That's not my wife. Um, you wouldn't tell him to go befriend her. You wouldn't tell him to reject the sexual aspects, but to embrace the non-sexual, heterosexual orientation, non-genital heterosexual orientation and act on that by pursuing a, a uh, covenant friendship with her. But or a <laughs> what, what if he what if he told me that he really needed collegial intimacy? Right. Should, <laughs> should I not just bow in front of that and say, no, friend, go go seek that intimacy with your colleague? It's just crazy, man. It does I mean, get it, silly pretty quickly. It is. I mean, for any other sin, yeah. any other sin that's not uh, fashionable, according to the culture. I mean, 
the only reason why this stuff is being able to be propagated is because homosexuality has been embraced in our culture. Yeah, the so there's sort of an aesthetic pull from the culture is what you're what you're saying, that it's working on certain uh, components of the church to make them find what the world finds fashionable, fashionable within the church. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally, no one has argued this stuff. I mean, who has argued what Revoice is arguing? I mean, I always hear Wesley Hill quoting Roman Catholics, medieval Ro- Roman Catholics. And why you keep, man, you're a Protestant. Why you keep quoting all these Roman Catholics that have a different view of sin than you do? Because yeah. it makes you sound deep and really well read, man. Um, I'm I'm joking. I don't want to assign like superficiality to to Wesley. I I, I sh- you know I'm just it's, I'm just being jovial. It's because there's no Protestants who he can quote. That's why. Well, I really want to get there, but there's some there's some jewels on the Christmas tree here that need to be looked at. So you've raised the idea of kind of taking the approach revoiced us to same sex attraction. And applying it to other sins, and one of the one of the best things I've ever read from you is the comparison you made between uh, the the approach of Revoice towards same sex attraction and uh, the gentleman in the church who has a foot fetish. Could you lay that out for our listeners because I think they're going to enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah, in in my article part two um, on applying Revoice's logic to all sin on the Founders website. Um, I apply. I begin by applying Revoice's logic to sins that are more prom- prominent, sexual sins that are more prominent in the population than homosexuality. You know, homosexuality, LGBT. You know, every letter. Um, it's roughly it's under five percent of the population. Um, but fetishism is about. This is pretty astonishing, man. Forty percent have a pattern of fetishistic. <laughs> <laughs> fetishistic desires and over 26 percent had a pattern of fetishistic behavior that's incredible that that's an incredibly large number and so one of the most popular and so the reason why i did this is because pastors need to learn to counsel these people because there are probably you know if you have 100 people in your congregation 40 of them have this have this uh desire uh, hopefully it's much lower than that um but you know, there, there, the probability that there, you're, there, there are more people with fetish desires in your congregation than there are homosexuals, probably. Yeah. Well, the most most popular is a shoe or a uh, foot fetish, and um, and so I suggested, you know, if a deacon comes to you and says, "Hey, I, I have a foot fetish. My wife doesn't want me to mess with her feet." You know, I work at the shoe store. I got to be around feet. Um, what should I do? How, help me out. And, um, you know, I said, should the pastor tell him following Nate Collins logic and Wesley Hill's logic on rejecting the sexual aspects of his orientation, his pattern of sinful desire, rejecting the sexual aspects, but taking the non-sexual like a desire to touch feet, um, a desire to be close to feet, a desire for foot intimacy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I suggested let's put this dude over uh, foot washings at church <laughs> so, so he can, uh, you know, exercise his um, desire, his orientation in a holy way. And I mean, that is pure and utter nonsense. And I don't just suggest it about that. I talk about pedophilia later. And you imagine someone coming to you and saying, I've got a pedophilic orientation. Imagine telling him to reject the sexual aspects, but to embrace the non-sexual, his desire for pedo pedo intimacy, for child intimacy. And imagine trying to put someone like that, tell him to get involved in children's ministry. But that's the logic. That's the logic. Um, yeah, I mean, you took, I mean, like we just went from like having a chuckle about a silly idea about foot washing to just the grossest, but 
directly applicable comparison here you know uh, yeah i don't i don't understand how how they could deny that um and I, i've said that to guys and they say well pedophilia is naturally predatory and like oh not according to <laughs> Not according to many pedophiles who've never acted on it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the same arguments it. for homosexual behavior not being naturally predatory can be used in all sorts of other sexual perversions. Right. I mean, it's there are so many. Like just the DSM, which is the uh, oh, is it the Diagnostic American and Psych- Statistical Manual? Yes, the basically the Bible of psychology on disorders and paraphilic disorders. Um, but they they called uh, pedophilia a an orientation back in 2015 or 16, and people went nuts. LGBT community went nuts, and so they replied and said they released an article saying we it was a, a typo, we didn't mean to say it, but they did say, and this was new. They just recently said that pedophilic desire is not a disorder unless you act on it, and so they they said having these desires are not a disorder and we, which is that's a change that's new mm. um and so i'm telling man it's moving that direction and it you know revoice i wonder if eventually revoice will um will extend its boundaries to include a p on the lgbt yeah yeah well that you know there's a lot we can talk about but i want to get to the 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 reference you made earlier with Wesley Hill having to go back to a Catholic tradition to defend his modern position uh, and the way he cannot appeal to the Reformed tradition to defend his position could you could you work through that with us for a little bit sure um, you know in the Protestant Reformation 1500s and 1600s one of the big issues was their understanding of sin now both both groups at that time believed that sin was anything contrary to God. I mean, both groups, both the Roman Catholics and both the Protestants, believed that sin was anything contrary to God. And so original sin condemned you. Um, it was guilty. You were, it produced guilt, morally culpable guilt. That's why you had to be baptized to wash away that, that sin. But the difference was, and the debate was, over Roman Catholics believe that once you're baptized, that original guilt was gone. And, um, you know, sin then changed. It no longer brought new guilt. Uh, but the Protestants argued that sin did not change, that it was still guilty. It just, it was no longer imputed. It was imputed to Christ. And, um, and so these guys today, like Wesley Hill, that are arguing that it is guiltless um, sin to be same-sex attracted is Pelagian. I mean, it's possible that it is currently Roman Catholic because the Roman Catholic Church got more and more um, Pelagian. They began grounding sin in the will. Um, and that's basically what Wesley Hill does. He, he pretty much grounds uh, sin in the will, contrary to his, uh, you know, the 39 articles of the Church of England, of his own confession. Thomas Cranmer wrote that confession and was burned alive for it. Hmm. And, uh, and he affirms original sin, clears a bell in it. And it just blows my mind that these Anglicans are in that tradition paved in (laughs) Cranmer's blood and nevertheless argue contrary to that and teach blatantly, unashamedly against it and still claim to be orthodox. Um, Cranmer wouldn't say he's orthodox. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just to put a fine point on it, 
you know, if you as a Christian are looking at this subject and you find, and I'm saying this as a summary for you to critique, modify, whatever, um, you find yourself looking at the discussion around same-sex attraction, how a Christian should approach that subject faithfully. And if you're trying to split out uh, temptation from will, and, you know, you you want to find some redemptive quality in this particular uh, orientation to a particular kind of sin. You, you're going to have to choose between the Reformed tradition and the Roman Catholic tradition, and you're going to land in Rome. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? You're going to land in Rome or you're going to land with Pelagius. You're going to you're going to have to argue that there is good that comes apart from God's design or you're going to have to argue, you're going to have to indict God on homosexuality. You're going to have to say that. And actually, if you go and you read um, revoices frequently asked questions. Um, they they argue that you know some people argue that same sex attraction is is a distortion of something good God created and um, man that blows my mind that they print um, it's not the distortion of something good it's something alien it is something the devil has passed down through Eve I mean that's what it is mm. you know quit quit indicting God on desiring things that are contrary to God's design. I mean, the Apostle Paul in Galatians talks about the flesh versus the spirit. Is same-sex attraction of the flesh or is it of the spirit? I mean, it, this isn't hard. You know, it, it's you have to argue one or the other. Yeah. And if it's of the spirit, if it's of the spirit, it's holy. If it's of the flesh, it's wicked. You know, from the from its core. The Apostle Paul, and it's interesting when you when you're reading in Romans. When you're reading in Romans, concern, Romans seven concerning the flesh versus the flesh versus the spirit, he's using personal pronouns, talking about his desires. Right? I desire. I hate what I do, but I mean, he, it's just it is the Apostle Paul who who is desiring sinful things. Paul who is desiring holy things. Paul, hmm. you, you know what I'm saying? Like Paul is yeah. the one. There's not. You can't divide his nature. I mean, you have the person acting through his nature. And he's acting through his flesh. Even if even if the flesh is the one dragging him along, it's nevertheless the person who is culpable. I mean, what, why does having an orientation, a pattern of desire, somehow eliminate moral culpability? Do not do you not have a pattern of desire for sin, Jeff? Do you, yeah. Does not every single yeah. Christian have a pattern of desire from birth or well, from conception? A pattern of desire contrary to God. Does that somehow absolve us? Do we not need Jesus' blood to cover that? Well, then why the incarnation? Why did God become man and be sinless? Why did we need someone who was without sin? Why why did we need someone who was without original sin to save us? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It's well, precisely and, because that's con- condemning. It's condemnation. Yeah, to go all the way back to the, the first part here, you know, if if the listener was wondering why the Matthew Lee Anderson idea that Jesus would will something different from his father, you know, part of what I need in a Savior, uh, because the standard is to love the Lord my God with all my heart. Mm-hmm. I need someone to do that for me because I have failed to do it. And if Jesus... <laughs> If Jesus isn't going to always perfectly keep the standard of loving the Lord on my behalf, I'm undone, right? Mm-hmm. If if Jesus faltered on that part in Gethsemane, I, I'm doomed. 
Uh, right. There's bigger ramifications for who he is and, and the Godhead and all that. But I mean, if you really wonder where the practical value of this is, Christian, uh, you need someone in your place always loving to do the will of the Father and always hating to do anything contrary to the will of the Father because that's the standard. And you have never perfectly loved to do the will of the Father. And you've always failed to perfectly hate uh, any uh, rebellion against the will of the Father. If Jesus... If those things are in Jesus, uh, we're all lost. Right. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, these guys argue that it's so neutral, that uh, same-sex attraction is so neutral. Collins even permits that maybe um, people will be gay in heaven. Oh, yeah. So we won't be married. We'll be like the angels, but we also might be gay. Well, okay. Look, I mean, we we can sit here and sort of deal with the scandal of what Revoice is teaching piecemeal. I, I feel like maybe, hopefully, the listener will see that we've kind of walked through some of the major issues. Right? What was what was willing like for Jesus? How did it relate to the Father's um, the Father's will? Uh, what is the difference between uh, a distorted, marred? creationally good desire and something that is intrinsically uh, rebellious against God. We've got into the distinction between Rome and the Protestant tradition that Revoice is picking up. I think here, one of the one of the other questions I want to ask you is uh, specifically what else is Revoice teaching that we should be aware of? And, and the reason what you just said uh, kind of brought that question to my mind is that if you've paid attention to the Revoice conference at all, you know there was a breakout seminar that was very controversial, where the question was asked, what queer treasures will come into the New Jerusalem, which uh, which sounds very much like Nate Collins speculating that people might be gay in heaven. So what else should we know about Revoice's teaching? Um, you know, that, that fellow that presented that uh, about the queer treasure, I believe he's fully affirming gay now. Like embraces same sex marriage and the whole nine yards. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, I, it, it I, I wish that weren't the case, but that's unsurprising. They're, these things are on a trajectory, right? It, it wasn't Collins who said that, but it was, and that's something else that you hear, man. That you know, the PCA right now, you have elders who are defending uh, Revoice, and they use the argument: this is a conversation. This is they're not monolithic. This is not. Look, I can go through. Show me anyone. That believes the Protestant view of sin that's teaching at Revoice. Like, who who is it? I haven't seen anybody. I've actually seen them turn away former homosexuals. They won't even let them come. Hmm. I mean, um, I know that didn't answer your question, man. But um, they're I just yeah, no, I'm, uh, that that hump wasn't a sort of a let's get to my question. It was just. That that's a that's a pretty narrow conversation. That that may be that may in fact be having a conversation with yourself and your feedback loop. Right, right. It's not an orthodox. Like I get tired of them saying we affirm biblical marriage. I, I because they don't. They don't affirm biblical sexuality. If you don't affirm biblical sexuality, you don't affirm biblical marriage. You don't affirm orthodox marriage. And one of the elders I interacted with on Twitter, who's a big advocate, he's a teaching elder in the PCA and defends Revoice all the time. He's got a PhD from Duke, I believe, or Notre Dame one. Uh, so he should know better, but or maybe not. <laughs> but uh, but anyway. It just he says that revoice affirms the orthodox view of marriage. And I said, well, well, what is that? And he said, well, that only husbands and wives should have sex with each other. I was like, that's your definition of biblical marriage. Like, yeah. come on, dude. <laughs> like, there's atheists that affirm that. And you're saying that's the Christian orthodox view of marriage. Sure. Seneca would affirm that. Right. 
oh, good grief, like expand that a little bit. <laughs> like, come on, the Orthodox view has been much more than that. There's yeah. no way any of the Protestants would have believed this nonsense. None of the Roman Catholics would either. I mean, now after Trent, once, you know, you get to the 1800s, 1900s, you know, they, they, they get more Pelagian, Rome does. But um, man, back at Trent, though, um, I mean, these, these guys aren't even arguing like what Trent argued. They're not arguing that um, that their same-sex attraction brings guilt. That's that's not what they're arguing. And uh, and something else, Jeff. I know you want to. I assume we're going to get to this, but the PCA presented a report. They had a study committee to examine the doctrines of revoice, and they put out a report. And um, this report, so. A couple years ago, the SBC released the Nashville Statement, which is a statement on human sexuality and same-sex attraction. And, and so when that come out, Revoice threw a fit going against it. Mm. Well, the PCA just a month ago released this report, and it's to the right of the Nashville Statement. It's better than the Nashville Statement. And that same day, members of Revoice were saying they affirm it. Like, how in the way well, you've been teaching contrary to this for over two years, your books, I can pull quotes from your books and your lectures that are the exact opposite of this. You do not affirm this. So, man, the, the PCA is at war and they're going to be unless they're willing to hold them accountable. They're stuck with revoice because they're willing to lie through their teeth to stay in the denomination. Hmm. Well, yeah, I do want to get there and I want to get to Southern Baptists as well. But before we do that, you, you made a statement there about the Nashville statement and as someone who knows you, I think I understand what you meant. Uh, I don't think you meant that as a criticism of the Nashville statement. I think you're saying that, my, look how good the PCA st- uh, statement is, because it's it's even better than this good Nashville statement. Am I understanding you right there, or would you have some quibbles with the Nashville statement? Um, I don't think the Nashville statement went far enough, but it went far. It went far enough to take Revoice off, which good. Like it, it <laughs> yeah. Revoice. Re, you cannot affirm Revoice in the Nashville statement. Gotcha. Um, they, you just can't. They're they're the opposite of each other. And um, but the PCA statement, the theology in the PCA statement is so good. It's to the right. It's more clear than the Nashville statement. But then they undo PCA statement, undoes some of their theology in their empathy section. You know, how do you apply this pastorally? And um, and that's discouraging. But um, but I mean, the theology is spot on. I mean, theology is my dissertation. I mean, it's just quoting. What the Reformed tradition has always been. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's narrow this in as we start looking at the end of our conversation here. Um, People are hearing us talk about the Roman tradition and the Reformation tradition and the the PCA, and they may be saying, you know, I'm not that kind of Baptist. I don't think I have any relationship really to any of those. Uh, Why should a Southern Baptist be concerned about what's going on with the Revoice? Sure. Uh, one example comes from uh, SBC Voices, SBC Voices' blog. Um, in the SBC, it used to be pretty prominent, and I think it still has quite a bit of influence. Um, but uh, but Dave Miller wrote an article titled, They Will Know You Are My Disciples If You Trash Heretics. And um, it's interesting because in number two, he says, what is the nature of same-sex attraction? And he says, this is a legitimate discussion uh, the church needs to have, and I can see the wisdom on both sides. Obviously, same-sex desires were not part of the original creation, but by the same token, it is the action, not the desire, that is the real sin. And, um, you know, that, that grounds sin in the will. That is a Pelagian view of sin. 
that is not a biblical view of sin. I mean, think of the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet, Thou shalt, which is desire. Thou shalt not desire hmm. your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's possession, anything that belongs to your neighbor. I mean, the Tenth Commandment is about the heart. And um, and think about what you just said earlier about love the Lord your God with all your actions. Is that what it says? Hmm. No, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. There's nothing in your life that you're not supposed to love the Lord your God with. Like, it's not saying that that's meant to be all-encompassing concerning you as a person. You know, like mm -hmm. you can't have something that doesn't love God. And you can't tell me that same, the same sex attracted part of you is loving God through that same sex attraction any more than the adulterous part of you or the, you know, the pedophilic part of you or the whatever you fill in the blank, a sinful. It's the opposite of loving God. And uh, so here you have a, a Southern Baptist pastor who um, led the pastor's conference a couple of years ago at the SBC, who has been the, I think he's been the uh, SBC president of Iowa, um, if I'm not mistaken. Was the and second president of the SBC, right? Second VP of the SBC three or four or five years ago, maybe six years ago. And, um, you know, so so he has a lot of influence, but the, but it's not just him, Todd, uh, Ben Kirk, Kurt, um, Jay Atkins shared it. There were several pastors that write for SBC Voices that shared this view and defended it publicly. And uh, it's just it's a flat out not biblical view. It's not it's not a biblical view. It's not a Protestant view. Um, you know, it, it just does not fit with the Bible at all. I mean, it, it's discouraging to me when I read this stuff in our own denomination. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you, man. I hear you. Well, and, you know, it's a point that we talked about off air. One of the reasons I want to talk to you about this was the question we just we just worked through. And uh, for Southern Baptists. We're one of the big ships in evangelicalism, and what is pushing on evangelicals is going to naturally push on Southern Baptists. And it seems like this re-engineering of human sexuality, our understanding of temptation, our understanding of nature, that has sort of been embodied in the Revoice conference and theology and movement to whatever degree it is, uh, that's going to that's gonna push on Southern Baptists, even if it's, you know, at least right now, primarily a PCA thing. Oh, yeah, 100%, man. And I mean, it, this affects our view of sin, but it also affects our view of Jesus's work. Because think about the, the language there. Like Miller says that it's not the desire, but the action that is the real sin. So, so think about what Jesus, what we believe concerning Jesus's atoning work. Did he have to atone for our sinful desire? Mm. And if the answer is no, then why can't we have sinful desire in heaven? Or why why won't we? Um, and not only that, but concerning the imputed righteousness of Christ, we only needed his righteous actions imputed to us. We didn't need his righteous desire. We didn't need his love for God from his heart. We needed just his outward love for God imputed to us. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a troubling implication. Because you don't, I mean, do we need the full righteousness of Christ? I mean, but you, you think of what the Bible teaches. We need entirely new natures. We are so dead in sin that these natures must be remade. Right. I mean, we need Christ. I'm, I'm, I think in Romans 4, 
that the Apostle Paul not only argues that we need new natures, he, he argues that it is the faith of Christ that saves us. I mean, it, it is not just Christ's nature that saves us, not just his atoning work, not just his obedience, but literally his belief, his faith. And that faith is credited to us and becomes our faith. Um, I mean, he's the reason why we believe. And, and so it, it's entirely from beginning to end, salvation is a work of the Lord that we appropriate, that we put into practice because of his regenerating work in us. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm i chewing on this, also thinking about maybe there's maybe it's a false dichotomy to try to split up desire from action uh, in the way that that we're referencing from from Miller's piece, because I'm, I'm thinking about the way Paul talks about the sin of coveting. Right. I, I may be able to restrain myself from cre- from from committing murder. I may be able to restrain myself outwardly from stealing from my neighbor. But coveting is a damnable sin that would destroy me, and it arises from within me. And when I am coveting, even though there is no outward action, it, it, it sure feels like coveting is a work of my will, that I will to have this thing that the Lord has not willed for me to have. And so I, I just wonder right. even if that distinction between action and will, or sorry, action and desire, I just I wonder if that's even meaningful. Yeah, in, in Rome, if you go read the Roman Catechism today, um, Roman Catholic Catechism, they argue, they distinguish lust from desire. And if you go back and you read the Protestants in the 1500s and 1600s, virtually any Reformed confession that discusses original sin and desire, they do not distinguish, even Augustine, they do not distinguish between lust and desire or or desire of the mm. flesh, fleshly desire. They're one and the same. Yeah. And, huh. um, and so you cannot, it's not like you have a desire that becomes lust. No, it's a lustful desire from beginning to end. That's what James argues mm. in James 1 when he talks about how God gives tests and trials, but he doesn't give temptations. No, you tempt yourself. And when that temptation lures and entices and carries you away, it grows or it conceives sin and then grows into death. Yeah. You know, he, he's talking about from beginning to end, your sin is your fault. And if you don't stop it at the point of um, desire, it will kill you. Um, and I, I think he's making a genius. He's making a genealogical metaphor there, you know, that um, that sinful desire or inner temptation can only lead to what it is morally, which is sin and death. And, and you know, that's even nature is fixed throughout. Right. So it's. When it when it gives birth to death, it's not like it gave birth to something that had a different nature. Death right. as the final product reveals what the nature was all along. Right. It's just it, it's getting into more heinous. You know, it yeah. it is it is more heinous to have a sinful outward action than it is to have a sinful desire. As far as how detrimental it is, um, and so it, it's uh, and again, if you read that passage, James says that this is not from God, which is a moral statement. Like the, the, you can't. Well, otherwise, you're saying, well, no, this is something good, or this is something. But that, I mean, James's argument is the exact opposite. Look, he's trying to get them to take responsibility for every single aspect of their sin. And even Robert Gagnon gets this wrong, who's a brilliant New Testament scholar. He argues that, well, see, sin. It's not sin until it, temptation, inner temptation, conceives. But but no one would argue that sin only leads to death when it's full grown. You know, I think sure. that, that these guys are just butchering that text in James 1, 13, 14. Um, 
they're they're not understanding the metaphor. James is not defining sin as only when it conceives any more than he's arguing that only when sin is full grown does it lead to death. No, sin always leads to death. Yeah, Just in like, seed form or the most mature form, right? Right. And so inner temptation always leads to sin. If you don't if you don't deal with it, it always leads to sin. Yeah. I mean, that's James's point. It's not ever aimed at holiness. And so that, but Revoice would have you to believe that inner temptation is aimed at holiness, that you can turn your inner temptation, your homosexual orientation, you can turn it to same sex friendships and it be holy. So, two things here just to, to get close to wrapping up. On the question, I'm just going to try to summarize on the question of why this matters to Southern Baptists. Uh, we've said that one, you know, it's not going to stay compartmentalized over in the the more reformed uh, neighborhood, right? But it's going to push on Southern Baptists already. I mean, we, we you, you've mentioned that Nate Collins came through a, an SBC seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, we also just see that this is sort of the spirit of the age. And so uh, anybody within SBC circles who fills a pool to the aesthetic pool of the spirit of the age is going to find arguments within Revoice that they can bring to their Southern Baptist church. Um, the, the the most heinous one is that it's an assault on the, the glory of Christ as the perfect Savior, right? Absolutely. Uh, is, is there anything we've missed there on, on why this would matter to Southern Baptists? Um, if, if you embrace Revoice's view of sin, you're going to sell your children um, to the spirit of the age. Mm. And uh, what I mean by that is imagine imagine in your church having a pastor or a deacon who calls himself a gay Christian. What that will do to all those little boys and girls who are growing up who are being bombarded with homosexuality on in pop culture, in music, at school, everywhere. I mean— and then imagine that boy or girl having a same-sex desire and wondering, you know, does this mean I'm gay? Well, he's got a gay pastor. He's got a—and Robert Gagnon in his book, uh, Homosexuality in the Bible, which is a great book for the most part, um, I still would recommend that you read it. He argues that basically where homosexuality is accepted and publicly embraced and emphasized, that it produces more homosexuality. Sexuals. And it, I mean, it makes sense. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What a sure. society embraces, future generations grow up to embracing as well. And um, and so if your church embraces this mentality and revoice is allowed to flourish and dominate in our churches, we're going to raise up more men and women who embrace homosexuality in part because we have taught them that aspects of an unnatural attraction are holy. Jared, I guess the last thing here then, pastorally, if anybody's thinking through the pastoral application of this, we're, are we back to just John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you? Um, yes, I think I think we've got to emphasize the gospel and we've got to tell folks, um, we've got to treat this like any other sin. We've got to tell folks to fight any desire that is contrary to God. And wh- where we fall short, we enjoy the imputed righteousness of Christ. We enjoy that our sin has been paid for by him and his righteousness has been credited to us to where even though we may battle same-sex desires in our heart, Christ did not and does not. And because we are in him, we are declared righteous and being made righteous by God, the Holy Spirit. And one day that same sex attraction and desire will be completely gone for eternity. I mean, you know, it's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. It's not in diminishing sin that's going to comfort people. It's Christ's destruction of sin. 
Well, amen, brother. Amen. Well, hey, Jared, thanks for your time here. I uh, appreciate your, your generosity on that. Appreciate your work. Uh, I know you've got a lot of irons in the fire in terms of publication. We're going to be rooting for that dissertation to come out. Uh, would you would you point any of our listeners to any other writing beyond the Founders and Monergism series? Yeah, Chris uh, Chris Bolt has a series that's actually on Founders Well. That's a multi-part series, Engaging Revoice. That's helpful. And uh, you can find that under Chris Bolt on Founders. And, um, oh, the PCA report, uh, the PCA study report, and also the Missouri Presbytery released a report as well. Both of those are good theologically for the most part. Um, anything by Owen Strand on this subject is good. Anything by Wayne Grudem on this subject is good. Um, Wayne Grudem's ethics books, uh, his uh, exegesis of First Peter is good on this subject. And um, I mean, there are many other, anybody from the Protestant Reformation, I mean, literally anybody, that's what's crazy. It's like this, these arguments that Revoice is bringing up, nobody in the 1500s and 1600s among the Protestants and Reformed and Lutherans and Church of England, none of them believe like these guys. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that as well. Listener, if you want to get into uh, into this a little bit deeper, you got some resources there. Uh, Jared, last question, man. Where can people follow your work? Where, where can they find you on the interwebs? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. Uh, you can find a podcast that Jeff and I are involved in uh, called Pop Culture Quorum Dale. And uh, we're looking forward to releasing more episodes there. And um, just get a hold of me and talk with me. I, I want to help. I want to truly help um, people who battle same-sex attraction. Um, you know, I, I'm not against homosexuals. I, I believe Revoice hates homosexuals. Hmm. Um, and the reason why I say that is they do not believe what the Bible teaches sure. um, concerning this subject. And it's similar to telling an adulterous man to embrace the non-sexual aspects of his adulterous desires. And that would be uh, pastoral malpractice. That that would be wicked. That is the devil. And it'd be destructive you know? of the person you're counseling. It would lead right. them to death. Yeah. Right. It's, 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 it's not good or holy. And yet they're being portrayed as the ones who truly love and they're truly empathetic. And it's the exact opposite. Yeah. When you're when you're teaching contrary to the Bible, it, it is it destroys. It does not build up. It does not heal. And so I, I do want to help homosexuals. I do want to help those who battle these indwelling desires because I battle indwelling desires. Come join me and we'll fight together. Sure. Here, here. Uh, and thanks be to the Lord for the local church. That, that should be a fellowship of believers doing that, that, that very thing together. Right. Amen. All right, brother. Well, I appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Listener, uh, we are. Uh, we're really thankful that you tuned in here. We're thankful that you chose to listen to the podcast, and we hope you will subscribe to the feed and join us for the next episode. But until that point, I am Jeff Wright on behalf of Jared Moore, thanking you for listening. Talk to you soon.